Welcome to the weekly sermon from Generations Church. We hope you enjoy this message by Pastor Scott Hale. We're in our series right now, Ordinary People, and today we're going to be looking in the Old Testament at a man by the name of Nehemiah. By the way, this morning I'm going to be doing something that's a little different than what I normally do. It's just not really my uh, preaching style, typically. Here's the deal. This story of Nehemiah, it's a, it's a book in the Bible. It's about 13 chapters long, but the story is so brilliantly written. I love this story. It's so brilliantly written, and it provides such a powerful path, teaching us to step out in faith for things that God calls us to do. What I'm going to be doing today is I'm going to be unpacking eight steps for us that we can follow to be the people that God can use to do extraordinary things. Eight steps today, okay? I'm, I'm kind of channeling my Ivan Tate. I, I normally don't do the seven, three steps to this or whatever, but this is what we're going to do. So, so it's going to be a little different. I, I hope if you have a piece of paper and a pen or if you have your phone or something like that, you can take some notes down because I think this is going to be really good for us all. Let me give us a little brief historical background because we want to see everything in context. You know, in the past several weeks, we've looked at a couple of characters in the Bible that were about 1200 BC, the age of the judges or the age of David. We're jumping 700 years into the future from last week's story of Abigail. Today, we're in the year 556 BC. King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon invaded Israel and they captured the Hebrew people, destroyed the glorious city of Jerusalem, destroyed the ornate holy temple that had stood for 400 years. The temple built by Solomon just burned it to the ground, tore down the walls, killed half the population, marched the other half in chains a thousand miles away back into Babylon. This event known as the Hebrew exile, or the exile to Babylon, is probably the most important turning point in Israel's history since the beginning of Israel. This was a huge event. It had a profound effect, not only just on on their way of life, but it had a profound effect on the Jewish religion and the writing of the Bible. Much of the, the, the Old Testament was actually codified and written during this exile event. And we've talked about that a little bit before, but this great exile to Babylon... This is also the event that leads to some of our, our favorite stories that many of us grew up with. Stories like uh, Daniel in the lion's den, the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace, the story of Queen Esther. These are all stories that occurred in Babylon, not in Israel, because there wasn't an Israel at this time. So that's kind of the time period we're in. The Jewish people were in captivity. Well, 50 years after that exile happened, the Babylonians themselves found themselves defeated by the Persians. So a whole new empire, the Persian empire. Every empire thinks they're the eternal last empire, right? Uh, But there's always a, a bigger bully on the block that comes along. The Persian king, his name was Artaxerxes. That's a fun name. Artaxerxes was the Persian king. He decides to allow some of the Jews to return to their homeland to Jerusalem. Um, Now, these Jews, now this is a long time after the exile, so most of these Jews would be people who were born and grew up in Babylon, turned into Persia. So these are kind of like Persian Jews, right? They've never even seen Israel before, but they've grown up. They've grown up hearing these stories. Um, And he's allowing them to go back just a few at a time in order to repopulate the region. It's just kind of made good sense for him to to repopulate the region as a defense against other empires, such as the Greek empire, um, rather than it being bare. 
And so this whole new generation that had never even lived in Israel before, they grew up Babylonian, they grew up Persian, they had only heard stories of what their elders would talk about, what it was like to live in their homeland. This new generation slowly began to journey back to Jerusalem to begin resettling. When they arrive in the ruins of Jerusalem, they find everything devastated, of course. Everything has been, and, and, but the first thing that they do uh, when they get there is they rebuild the temple. The temple right there in the center of the old city. They rebuild the temple that had been totally destroyed. And the story of that rebuilding is very interesting, and it's found in the book of Ezra. Ezra is the book that comes right before Nehemiah. In fact, Ezra and Nehemiah used to be one big scroll in the old Hebrew Bible. Uh, They split it into two stories, Uh, but it's actually part of one grand story. Today, we're focusing on Nehemiah. Okay, so this happens. You had the exile 50 years later. Some Jews start going back. They build the temple a hundred years go by, and since that first migration, and the city of Jerusalem and its walls are still mostly in ruins. So picture this. They built the temple, but the Jews that had gone back, they're basically living in slums and villages. They're at the mercy of still other kingdoms and, and people groups that had kind of sprung up in the absence of the Jews. They'd sort of sprung up in that area over the last century. Enter a humble servant, to that Persian king, Artaxerxes, a Jewish cupbearer by the name of Nehemiah. Nehemiah. And he begins to tell his amazing story. So we're in the book of Nehemiah. We're going to just, uh, we're going to jump into just little points along the, along the way. We'll start in chapter one, verse one. What's really cool about the story, by the way, of Nehemiah, I love it. It's, it's just, it's probably one of the great pieces of literature in the Old Testament. If you just love a good, well-told story, I encourage you to go back and read the whole book of Nehemiah this week. It'll, it's only 13 chapters long, and it's really, really cool. And you can even start with Ezra. It's kind of the prequel to it. Um, and it's told in the first person. So Nehemiah is telling his story, right? This isn't like second or third person, like he's hearing it hearsay. You're getting it straight from Nehemiah. You're getting it from all his feelings and thoughts and things as they go along. So here it says in in chapter one, verse one, Nehemiah says, in the month of Kislev, that's something, don't worry about it. In the 20th year, that's how they numbered things. It was the 20th year of King Artaxerxes. While I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah. So one of these Jews that had gone to Judah has come back to kind of report on the way things are. With some, he came with some men. I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down. Its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things... I sat down and wept, and for some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. So, so get the picture here. Nehemiah hears about this, that the wall of Jerusalem is in ruins. And, you know, and in the ancient world, if you have no wall, you really have no city in, in any real sense because you're, you're totally open. You have no defense against your enemies. Archaeologists tell us that at the time of the exile, the wall around Jerusalem was about a mile and a half in circumference, a mile and a half, which is just huge for that day for a city wall, uh, the wall around that city. A mile and a half, picture that, and in, in many places, uh, in most places, about 10 feet thick, and in some places up to 23 feet thick, the wall, 23 feet, just, that's, I don't know, a big part of this stage right here. Imagine the thickness of the wall, and 23 feet high. 
So this is, this is an enormous wall, right? Um, I'll just say this, this is no small problem, right? This is not like, hey, let's get a, a group of guys together one weekend and repair a fence. This is a major, major building project. There's no easy solution here. What happens is Nehemiah's grief at picturing this once majestic wall, this wall in ruins, it leads to a vision. He gets a vision. But this is a vision that is way beyond his ability. This is a God-sized vision, okay? A God-sized vision. And Nehemiah gives us the first step here that we can learn in order to be people that God can use in extraordinary ways. And that is, Nehemiah is willing to mourn someone else's misery, He's willing to mourn someone else's misery. Here's what I love about this story. I, you know, you could read through this story. It probably wouldn't have made the Bible if it had come out this way. But he could have said, now, when I heard these things from my brother, I thought, well, that's a real shame. Oh, well, I got my own problems, right? Went about my business. We probably wouldn't have had a book of Nehemiah. Um, he could have said, well, why in the world haven't all those Jews who have been, you know, living there for the last hundred years, why haven't they done anything about that, Right? I mean, that's their problem. I got my own problems. I'm stuck here in Persia. But that isn't what happens. It says Nehemiah sat down and wept. He wept about this. He took personal ownership in the plight of people that he did not have any personal stake in. Personal ownership in the plight of people he didn't have any personal stake. He's not the one, he's not the one living in miserable conditions, right? He lives in a palace. That's a pretty good job but he is moved by the misery of others. You know, what would happen, guys, what would happen if we did that? What would happen if we lived our lives in this way? If we allowed God, if he broke our heart for, for needs that were outside our daily experiences, right? Things that we just saw, these pictures that we see, these the mission pictures that Pastor Albert just told us about. I mean, these pictures, and for some of us, you've grabbed that, you've grabbed that vision, and you're like, Man, that breaks your heart when you see people in needs, when you see people who don't have even so much as just a church, a building to go to, right? And it's broken your heart. But what would happen if, if we got that, all of us got that holy passion for something around us? Sometimes it's mission. Sometimes it's just what's going on in our own community. What if we took personal responsibility for things that are outside our personal business? I'm going to say that again. Taking personal responsibility for something outside our personal business, right? And, that, and not to push, push our own agendas or our own political agendas or anything, but to push a kingdom agenda, a love agenda, taking personal responsibility for things outside our personal business. That's, that is a church that would turn this city upside down for Jesus. Amen? Amen. Let me speak some encouragement into your life this morning. Every vision, every vision that you get always starts with a spark of awareness, someone letting you know about a need, someone just coming up here and telling you, showing you a picture, or hearing a news report, or seeing something on social media, you see a need, and it sparks with that awareness. What happens is if you've got the love of Jesus in you, it doesn't stop right there. That spark doesn't just go, and you think, oh, that's, that's too bad. No, no, no. When you've got the love of Jesus in you, that awareness is flamed into a holy passion. And that passion, let me tell you, might feel like grief at first, it might break your heart. It might feel like a burden. And that's not fun. Nobody enjoys feeling that, right? Something that breaks your heart. And what is our natural inclination when we see something like that? Wow, that looks terrible. That, that, that makes me sad. That uh, makes me want to change the channel. 
That makes me want to distract myself with other things, right? That sounds, that's not where I want to lean into. No, no, no. But what if we don't run from that spark when we see the need? What if we're willing to mourn someone else's misery and, and we don't run from it, we don't medicate it away, or we don't smother it with distractions? What if we do what Nehemiah does, which is he mourns, he fasts, and he prays. And that's the second thing here, pressing in through prayer. Press in through prayer. Nehemiah leans into the burden. He's not afraid of it. He leans into this burden through prayer. We find out later that he did this for four months. Four months until he got this prompt from God. Four months that he spent with this burden just basically ripping his heart in two, four months seeking the next right step for God to tell him what to take. Understand this too. When we talk about spending time in prayer, pray for this. And we talk about, you know, we're, we're tarrying in prayer like Nehemiah did, four months praying. Don't think about, this is not four months spent begging God to respond. He's the God of love. He loves people more than you and I could even hope to love people. He already loves them. God already knows the need, right? Whatever it is that you're thinking, this is the need. God already knows it. He's already got a plan. He already wants to put it into into prayer. So what are you doing in prayer for that four? What is Nehemiah doing in prayer for that four months? What you're doing in prayer is you are getting your heart lined up with God's heart right? You are getting on God's wavelength. Sometimes we think when we pray to God that we're the compassionate one and we're just having to talk him into paying attention. That, that is a huge mistake, right? He loves people more than you and I can even imagine loving people. And we get in prayer and when the timing is right and God knows that you are in the right headspace to make a move, he'll communicate to you that next right step. He'll communicate to you. You don't have to worry. As you pray, that dream that he has sparked in you, that dream that it will grow and it'll flourish. And that great idea that you thought you had will become a God idea that you have to do. I'm going to say that again. That great idea that you thought you had will become a God idea. A God idea trumps a great idea any day. It'll become a God idea that you have to do. Amen? Nehemiah shows us something else. Step three, knowing it's time to take action. Because there's a moment where you have to do something, right? There's a moment where you got to, I think there's a period where you pray about it. You do, you pray about it, you seek God. And then at some point, that dream has to wake up into action, has to wake up. And that first move you make, it might not look like a really big, impressive move. It might not be the big move, but it's the step that sets the whole journey into motion. And so, and, and with Nehemiah, that first step for him was to start a conversation. We're going to see that in just a second. He started a conversation. So my question is to you, my question is, what step is God calling you to take? What is the little thing you can do to get things going? Because here's the deal. God is going to do what he's going to do. But if you don't make a move, he'll use somebody other than you. God's going to do what he's going to do, but if you don't make a move, he'll use somebody other than you. And there comes a moment where you've got to stop praying about it. You know what I mean? You guys are really quiet today. You got to stop praying about it and do something about it, okay? My wife, Mel, she is so amazing at this. She is, she's great at snapping me out of 
uh, I, I get in these spirals, just like eternal praying and planning, praying and planning. And, and that's just my happy place. And I just get there and it's just like, I'm in this whirlpool, just praying and planning. And she's so great at just reaching in, sometimes just pulling me out and saying, it's time to get to work, right? Right? Because I will spend all day in that whirlpool. I don't know if some of you are like me, but we just plan ourselves to death, Right? So we need, sometimes we need that that person to say, it's time, it's time to act, that person to speak in our life. So one day, Nehemiah, he decides, he's been praying, he decides to put those prayers into action. He says this in verse 11, he says, Lord, give your servant success today. He's like, okay, today's the day. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man, the king. That's his boss. Here's the fourth thing. Watch for divine connections. Look out for the divine connections that God has already put around you, that He is in the works of putting around you. For Nehemiah, one conversation. One conversation is what changes the course of history for all of Israel. Now, I love this story. It doesn't hurt that the conversation happens to be with the king, the emperor of Persia, right? If he had had this conversation with someone else, uh, if, he had, if he's like an assistant to the donkey salesman in, Bob, you know, in Babylon, that, that's probably not going to go many places, right? That's probably, this is probably the end of the story there. But here's what I believe. I believe that God makes sure that we meet who we need to meet when we need to meet Him, okay? When He's called you to this. You probably heard the saying, it's not what you know, it's who you know, right? It's not what you know, it's who you know. Well, how cool is this? God knows everybody, he knows everybody. And if you're living in Christ, if you're walking in obedience, you're seeking Christ, and, and, and then he's going to be faithful to order your steps. He's going to make sure that you meet the right people Amen. at the right time. He's going to set up those divine appointments. He'll set them up. And look, Nehemiah has got to be the least likely candidate for this job. Seriously. Rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem like, who can we get to rebuild the walls? Surely God would look for somebody in the construction industry, right? Maybe an architect. Somebody who, you know, has a lot of experience leading tribes of people, teams of people, maybe a military leader, right? Someone with the experience like that. God's like, no, 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 no. I'm going to give this mission to a waiter, right? That's who, that's a guy who pours drinks for a living, who lives a thousand miles away. Oh, and who's never even laid eyes on Jerusalem before? He's raised in, in Babylon. I'm going to give it to this guy. He has no idea how to build stuff, how to lead huge projects, how to defend himself, nothing. He's a waiter. Now, this is no knock on waiters. I was a waiter. I, wa- I, I waited tables my way through, through college. He's a, probably a very good waiter. He's got a, a very important, he's got one customer every day. It's the king, right? So hopefully he doesn't get in the weeds at lunchtime. It's one customer. But I, I, and, and I know waiting tables can be stressful. Believe me. Um, like I said, I waited, I waited at Papacitos. That was where I waited tables. And, and they have very firm rules. They're very fast-paced there. And I can honestly say, just to be really transparent, I was a terrible waiter. I was terrible. Man, all that, that high stress, fast pace, all this kind of stuff, people yelling at you, that part prepared me for the pastorship. But the, high, the fast pace of everything, oh my goodness. I mean, give me a church to lead during a global pandemic any day. Uh, the, the waiting tables, I spent most of my nights coming home and just crying in the fetal position. But still, rebuilding the walls of the greatest city 
in the ancient world that had laid in ruins for 150 years in the middle of a region that's crawling with tribes that just as soon as kill you for the camel that you're riding on, that this is another one of those bad ideas that God likes to have to do his miracles through, right? One of those bad ideas like, hey, Gideon, get rid of most of your army and, you know, let's go attack them with torches and flashlights, you know, or, or uh, hey, there's a big, huge Goliath, a giant in the land who wants to destroy our army. Let's send in the scrawny little guy and throw rocks at him right? These are bad ideas that God has, and He loves these bad ideas, right? And because He does His greatest miracles. God sees Jerusalem in ruins. He sees His, he sees his people in desperation, and He looks a thousand miles away at a humble, faith-filled cupbearer who has been strategically placed. He didn't even know this at the time, but He's been strategically placed in the one relationship that can change everything. And God gives Nehemiah favor with the king of Persia. Now, let me make an observation about favor. Favor, the favor of God, I have noticed, will complicate our lives. The favor of God will complicate our lives. When I got married, it complicated my life, right? It got much more complicated than just being a single dude with an apartment, right? Thank God for those complications, though, right? The favor of God. Mel and I now have three little complications named Julius, Mason, and Adeline. Thank God for complications, right? And we've got a, we got a, now we've got a four-legged complication named Guster who's running around. And he leaves little complications in each room if you don't take him outside in time. But these are the, right? That's, it makes life all worth it. I, I hear that the more money you make, your taxes get more complicated. Lord, bring the complications. Lord, amen, amen. God has given us in this church over these 34, 6, 36 years, he's given this church so much favor. But you know, each, each one of those big steps accompanied a call to, to make a big leap of faith and to be willing to live with new, holy complications. To live with complication. I mean, that's just the way it is. The favor of God will complicate your life. So, I will just ask this question. Are you willing for your life to be complicated? Are you willing for your life to be complicated? Because if you aren't, then God really can't use you in the way that He wants to use you, right? I imagine it would be far easier for Nehemiah to just keep his job enjoying the perks of the palace, I mean, come on, for a Jewish exile, this is about as good as it gets. I mean, he's not outside digging ditches, you know, in, to, in what's modern-day Baghdad. So it was hot. He's not outside, you know, he's not somewhere across the other side of the empire fighting in wars in some jungle for the king or something like that. He is, one of his jobs was tasting. He was a taster, you know, to make sure someone wasn't going to poison the king. So he's tasting the king's wine. He's tasting the king's uh, steak, right? He's, he's feeling the cool breezes of the, the throne room. You know, they probably got those guys with the fans going on. He gets to enjoy all that. This vision that Nehemiah has is going to complicate his life. And some of us, we, f- we feel a burden that God's given us. Oh, but we want that vision to come to pass in a way, in an uncomplicated way. What is the easiest way for this to come to pass? And I'm just going to give it to you straight. It probably won't happen that way. It probably won't happen in an uncomplicated way. Letting God use you is going to disrupt your comfort. It's, it's going to complicate your life. 
It's going to complicate your life, but it is worth it. It is worth it. The place that God wants to take you will be worth all the disruption, all the unforeseen hurdles along the way. But here's the lesson we get from Nehemiah, and that is if you inhibit what God wants to do with you, you will not inhabit where He wants to take you. If you inhibit where he wants to, what He wants to do with you, you'll not inhabit the place that He wants to take you, all right? This is, this is, my, this is my tweetable moment right here. This is my best Creflo imitation right there. That's it. Nehemiah does something else. He counts the cost. Nehemiah counted the cost. We know this because when he finally does have this great conversation with the king, he already knows what he needs to get the job done. I love this passage in, that we see in chapter 2. The king notices him one day, and he, he says, Nehemiah, you know, you look, you look like you got a lot on your mind today. Why are you so sad? Which is a really dangerous thing. It turns out in the ancient world uh, that it was against the rules. King Artaxerxes could have had you killed for being sad around him. True story. That was one of the rules. You aren't sad around the king because he doesn't want to be bothered by your problems. He wants everybody to be happy around him. And so uh, Nehemiah dares to show his grief, and the king's like, what's wrong? And Nehemiah's like, how how can I be happy when my, my homeland is in this state? And the king pops the question, what is it you need? What I love is that Nehemiah has an immediate answer. He's not like, Oh, uh, oh, I didn't expect you to, oh, I, I don't know. Um, I, I, right, I didn't know I'd get this far, right? He doesn't freeze like he hasn't really thought this through. He immediately tells the king in verse 5, King, send me to the city of Judah where my ancestors are buried so I can rebuild it. Let's send letters to the governors of Trans-Euphrates. That's the, the regions across the big river there. And so that they will provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah. And may I have a letter to Asaph. He's the keeper of the royal park. So he'll give me timber to make the beams for the gates and the city walls. Nehemiah has already thought this through. This is great. He's thought about the route. He's done his, geologic, his geographical and pe- political uh, research here. He goes into the throne room to ask for a favor, and he's already got his passport in his back pocket. He's ready to go. He's thought through the logistics and the supplies that he's going to need. He's like, I'm going to need a signed letter to the uh, park ranger that runs the forest there so I can have a lot of timber, right? I love this because here's what it tells me. Nehemiah has already built this thing in his mind. He's already gone through and rebuilt the wall. So he's taken ownership of this mission. He's taken ownership to, to, that he can see from beginning to end. But he also knows there are some huge gaps in his plan that he is going to need the favor of God for. So he can see the plan, but he knows there's gaps here. I can't do all this. I, that, here's where I'm going to need God to step in and do things. He knows he can't do this on, own, on his own. He believes, he trusts God. He knows that God, and we can know this too, that God will not give us a vision without giving us provision. Amen? He will always provide for that which he gives us a vision for. Let's keep unpacking the story. In verse 11, it says, so I went to Jerusalem. So Nehemiah gets permission. The king's like, go. And and notice, this is not like, this is a, it's a 900 miles journey, a 900 mile journey to Jerusalem. So this is not like, you know, I'm going to get up early in the morning. I'll get there late tonight. You're like driving to Ohio, which is our 900 miles. This is not an easy flight or something like that. In ancient terms, we're talking about a four-month journey through treacherous territory fraught with danger, okay? Fraught. I use that word today for the first time. 
So it says here, after staying there for three days, I set out during the, the night with a few others. I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. By night I went out examining the walls of Jerusalem, which had been broken down and its gates, which had been destroyed by fire. So notice this. Once he gets there, he doesn't like ride into town like a savior. Like, all right, you losers, I've got the plan. Follow me. Here we go. He doesn't arrive with a bunch of fanfare. He keeps his head down, right? He spends a few days just getting his bearings. He's, he's kind of chilled out. He's, he doesn't tell anybody why he's there. He goes out by night to check out the state of the walls for himself. He's heard the reports. He sees it all for himself. He's a very smart guy. And eventually, when he's ready, he gathers together the Jews of the city and of the regions, the, the, the nobles and the priests and the officials, and it says that he casts his vision. In verse 17, he says, Then I said to them, You see Jerusalem lies in ruins, its gates burned with fire. Come, let's rebuild the wall of Jerusalem when we will no longer be in disgrace. He says, I also told him about the gracious hand of God on me and what the king had said to me. So he's inspiring them with his story. He's like, guys, I was just a cupbearer, cup but I've spoken to the emperor himself, and we've got this all planned out. He has sent me here, and we can do this. And they replied, let us start building. He inspires this group, and they set to work. Great story. End of story? No, not quite, because we find out not everybody in the area was excited about this development. Remember how long this place has lied, des has lied laid desolate for, for so long. There's lots and lots of the surrounding tribes who were not Jewish who saw Nehemiah's plans as a threat to their own people. Um, there were um, wealthy merchant warlords in the area who had thrived kind of on the chaos. You know, warlords thrive in that kind of thing. They didn't like the idea of the old Jerusalem coming back, reclaiming its place in the region. And so the first thing it tells us is they do is they, they mock the Israelites. They mock them uh, for, for what they're trying to do. They're, they're telling them it's impossible. They're basically engaging in psychological warfare. They're, they're seeking to destroy the morale of the workers. They accuse them at one point of being disloyal to the king of Persia, right? They're like, oh, you're, you're trying to rebuild these walls so you can rebel against Persia or something like that. They're, they slander him. They report his activities to the, the Persian government, not knowing that they have the, the king's okay. And, and one time they even forge a letter from the king of Persia to, to Nehemiah telling him to stop, right? The king of Persia commands you to stop, signed king of Persia. And Nehemiah, he doesn't buy it. He's like, no, I don't think that's true. And he doesn't stop the work. And when that doesn't work, they resort to threats. They start threatening Nehemiah. They threaten the workers with violence. And at one point, he's got, he's got his workers up on the wall in their building, and, and he has to set up guards to protect uh, the workers who are, who are building. And he has his crew take turns, right? So one, one worker's got the, the, you know, he's laying bricks and this kind of thing, and the other worker's standing there with the sword, just ready. And then they swap places, and the other guy lays bricks, and the other guy stands with the sword. He tells him at one time, keep one hand on your sword at all times and one hand on your hammer. He just tells, this is the way they work. And night and day. One time, there's some, some of the neighbors in the region come, and they try, to, uh, they try to trick Nehemiah into coming out of the city, into meeting with them right? No, nothing else has worked. So finally, the, the leaders of the area come out and they go, Nehemiah, Nehemiah, you know what? We got off on the wrong foot here. I think we misunderstood each other. Why? You know what? This is really interesting, this job you're doing. 
just take a break. Come out over here to under this tree behind the hill where nobody can see us and tell us what you're, we want to hear about this plan. Tell us about this plan you're doing. This is really interesting to us. And uh, Nehemiah knows they're just trying to lure him, lure him outside the gate so they can kill him. And he famously responds, this is a famous passage here. He says, I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. I heard, I heard a message by Andy Stanley. He made a whole message out of this one phrase right here. And this is just like one of those phrases like we could all learn to, to repeat, right, when people try to get us sideways from what God's told us to do. I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. He says, why should I stop? Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? He says, four times they sent me the same message and I answered them in the same manner every time. Nehemiah teaches us Listen to God's voice, not the voice of your skeptics. When God's given you something to do, listen to his voice. You stay on target. You tune into the Spirit of God, not your skeptics. It would have been really easy for Nehemiah to listen to the skeptics, to get spooked, you know, by their threats, to get discouraged. It even tells us that some of the Jewish groups, some of the the tribes around there, they didn't want to help. Because they, they didn't believe in the cause. They thought this was a lost cause. Listen, whenever God gives you a God-sized vision and he calls you to a God-sized mission, opposition usually, we could say, will follow. Opposition will follow. When God gives you a God-sized mission, sometimes it's going to come from your enemies. That's to be expected. Sometimes it's going to come from your friends. And that's going to break your heart but it's to be expected. Sometimes it comes from the world, the secular world. Sometimes the opposition will come from religious people. It's true. Now, why? Why is that always true? Why can we say that without hesitation? Because that vision that we've already said is disruptive, it's going to be disruptive to your life, it's probably going to mean a disruption to the status quo for other people too. It's going to shift the ground under everybody's feet if it's a God-sized vision. And, And so that's okay that's okay. The last thing we learn from Nehemiah is to lean into community. Can I give you an observation? Nehemiah did not build the wall of Jerusalem. Nehemiah didn't build the wall. Now, he's, he's the one that gets all the credit for it, right? I mean, he's got the book named after him. Nehemiah, the great builder of the wall. No, he didn't. That's, that's impossible, right? There's no way he could have. Do you know what Nehemiah built? A community. He built community, and a community built the wall. His community built the wall. Chapter 3 is fascinating in Nehemiah. Go back this week, and you're just throwing time. It's so enjoyable to read. I wish we had an hour to just kind of unpack it all, but it is filled with the names of ordinary people who did this extraordinary thing. Different people from all walks of life who came together in unity to perform a miracle. It's really cool the way he did it too. Like he, there were different gates and he would have people who kind of had a personal stake in something to build a section of the wall, right? There was one, uh, there was uh, the sheep's gate, the sheep's gate. And so what he did, he talked to the priests and to taken off their, all their religious guard and to come in and help and build the sheep's gate. Why? Because that's where the people would be bringing their animals for sacrifice when all this was done. So the priests are like, yeah, we'll help. And so they get in there and they're helping out. There's another, there's another, another gate uh, that was where the commerce and the perfumes 
and, and things that were smelled good came through. And, and this guy who, he and, he and his family were in charge of like a perfumery. This is in there. And he builds that gate. They get together and they build a gate. There's one gate called the dung gate. Yes, there's a guy and his brothers. And that's, their job was to every day haul out the refuse of the city. That's what you had to do, right? Because the city generates a lot of, yeah. And so he takes it out. And so they, he and his, his bros got together and they built the dung gate. Every, and every one of these gates were, were, were eventually constructed and parts of the wall, they all had a part to play. And they're all named. It's so beautiful. They're all named. And what was the miracle? They all got to be part of this miracle. In the face of impossible odds, impossible financial costs, impossible threats and opposition that they were under. It tells us that 41 work crews worked day and night with a sword at their side to repair the glorious walls of Jerusalem. They did it without machines, without cranes, without any spotlights, without power tools. You know how long it took them? 52 days. 52 days. That's half the amount of time that Nehemiah spent in prayer about this project. He spent twice that amount of time praying about a project. It took him 52 days, which is just astounding in the ancient world. Montgomery County cannot fill a pothole on Rayford Road in 52 days. They built the wall of Jerusalem in this. But God gives Nehemiah a vision. And Nehemiah was able to cast that vision to a bunch of people who had gotten used to living in ruins for 150 years. He was able to wake them up from lives of mediocrity, hopelessness, and he stirred them to action. Nehemiah stepped out for a cause that did not need to be his. This didn't need to be Nehemiah's cause. The broken walls of Jerusalem was not putting him in any danger at all, right? 900 miles away in Persia. We, we could even imagine, I, I was sitting there this week, I was thinking what would be his personal cause if he was going to have a cause, right? It's being held captive as a Hebrew in the Persian government. He's, he's kind of a slave to the Persian government. I mean, you would think that's what he would, you know, get upset about and protest about and pray. His passion and concern, though, wasn't with the injustice going on in his own life or the rights and privileges that his government was taking away from him. His heart was the tragedy that was playing out a thousand miles away. I pray that Generations Church would look beyond the cares and concerns of our four walls. And this is a church that has proven that is the case over and over and over again. 36 years of being mission-minded, of looking outside these walls. That's the kind of place this is, a church that, that, cares beyond, that goes beyond the cares and concerns that affect us. Right? There's things that affect us right now. But to look beyond those things, to allow God to break our heart for what breaks his, that we would capture the spirit of rebuilding into the lives of other people. Let's be repairers, restorers of people's suffering that we come in contact with. Second Corinthians chapter 5 
describes beautifully, the 16 through, through 21, you got read that on your own this week. It's such a beautiful passage that talks about this ministry you and I are called to today, the ministry of reconciliation, repairers, restorers. That's what God has called us to, that we would work and walk in unity, even for causes that we may not feel personally inconvenienced by. We would dare to mourn for the suffering of someone else. And if you are somebody, if you're somebody that who's suffering in your circumstances today, maybe you're like those Jews had, who had been living in that broken down, burnt out shell of what Jerusalem once was, may you know that your heavenly Father sees you. He sees you. He knows you. You are not forgotten by Him. You are not disposable to Him. Provision is on the way because you're his child, you're his son, you're his daughter. Amen. Nehemiah was willing to travel 900 miles to restore the walls of Jerusalem. God leapt across the entire universe in the person of Jesus Christ, not to build a wall but to restore you in fellowship with Him. That's how far He would go to have a relationship with you. I want us to pray together this morning. I want to do something a little different today. If you have a need going on inside your life right now, if there is an area of your life you're suffering, you need God to do something, a miracle for you whether it's your health or your finances or a relationship or whatever it is. I'm just going to ask you to stand right where you're at. Would you just stand to your feet? I'm not going to ask you to come forward. We're social distancing and all that crud. But just stand to your feet. Whatever need you have, just stand to your feet. And we're, we're all going to pray for you. We're going to pray for you. If you're, if you're sitting here, would you just reach out a hand to someone near you who's standing? And I'm going to be praying, but I want you to be praying. Pick out a person. Pick out one or two people near you. Reach out your hand, and would you just pray for them right now? Hallelujah. Father God, I thank you, Lord, for your goodness. Father, I thank you. We love you, Lord. Lord, we glorify your name. We praise you, Father God. I thank you, Lord God, that you see the needs of the people who are standing right here, Lord God. You know intimately exactly what they're going through, Father. You know exactly what's happening, exactly what they need, what they're crying out to you for. And Lord, we don't have to beg you to to act. You already know exactly what needs to be done. So I thank you, Lord God. I pray that our hearts that the rest of us, our hearts would be open, willing to be broken for what breaks yours, Father God. Forgive us for our tendency, Lord, to, to put on blinders and to just focus on matters that only affect us. Forgive us, Lord God, for ignoring the burdens that others around us might be carrying. May we lean into prayer more. May we allow your spirit, Lord God, to recalibrate our hearts. May we be courageous, to take action when it's time to step out, Lord God. 
May we, may we look for, Lord, for those, those divine connections that you've placed around us. You're so faithful to put those connections in our life. Lord, may your favor abound in our lives. And may we not shrink away from the complications that, might, that favor might bring, Lord God. Help us, Father God, to count the cost, to be neither foolish nor fearful. May we, Lord, dis- disregard the voices of our skeptics and naysayers and focus on the voice of your spirit who is guiding us. May we be open to the voice of those who have our back, Lord God, who are for us, to their wisdom, Lord God, the ways that you might speak through people around us to do and accomplish what you've called us to do, Lord God. And Lord, may we lean into community even in this time of social distancing, may we lean in, Father God, and resist the temptation to just sort of lone wolf our way through our spiritual life. May we get through this together. May we depend on each other, Lord God. May we walk in unity with one another. May we love one another like you have loved us. We ask all of this, Lord, in your precious name. Amen. My friends, May the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. And may he turn his favor towards you and complicate your life in beautiful, amazing, miraculous ways. Amen. Grace and peace. Grace and peace. Thank you, sir.